You're listening to an Airwave Media Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. The world is constantly changing and transforming. Cut through some of the noise with What's New with Wired, a podcast that goes in depth on the latest news and technology and culture. Their award-winning journalism will help you make sense of what's happening in the world. Listen to What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. That's What's New with Wired wherever you get your podcasts. You've heard of Steve Jobs and Steve Wozniak, but the name Ada Lovelace may not be so familiar. The 19th century mathematician and daughter of Lord Byron was a pioneer in computer programming. She recognized its power, but she said it was limited. Machines would never outstrip humans in their capabilities, she said. But today, we're on the brink of a world where everything will be connected and programming principles are applied to living cells. So was Ada Lovelace right about the limits of machines? It's Living Computers on Big Picture Science. Innovation has always changed the world. Hail, fellow. Good morrow. Pray I'm hying myself to the village to buy sheep gut. Let's go thither together. I mean together, thither. Nay, I must haul these rocks one by one from the river banks to my hovel with my bare, calloused and bleeding hands. Hello, it's the 12th century. Why dost thou not make use of the wheelbarrow that has come to us from a team of goodly Chinese innovators? Tis splendid. Bah, I doth not trust newfangled gadgetry. Now letteth me getteth on with it. Well, not everyone is an early adopter. Today, 800 years after the European wheelbarrow craze and a mere 200 years since the beginnings of the Industrial Revolution, we're undergoing another revolution. How about I download threshold recording software to my smartphone and leave it on my nightstand to record my alleged snoring, which I don't do. Oh, you do. Computers and the Internet have radically changed our lives, but their transformative effects have not slowed. If anything, they're picking up speed. I'm Seth Shostak. I'm Molly Bentley, and welcome to Big Picture Science, produced at the SETI Institute, where scientists study the origin, nature, and prevalence of life. On Big Picture Science, we step back to get a wide-angle view on science and technology from where they've been to where they're going. And this episode has both, the birth of the digital revolution and its future, in which everything is connected, plus the possibility of programming living cells. One of the computer pioneers of the 19th century said that machines would never surpass the abilities of humans. Was she right? It's living computers. This guy has gotten into the head of a lot of talented people. I'm Walter Isaacson of the Aspen Institute and the author of The Innovators. Note the plural on the title. Walter Isaacson is known for his biographies of individuals whose singular talents have left indelible marks on our history. Ben Franklin, Albert Einstein, Henry Kissinger, Steve Jobs. But his latest book, The Innovators, is about the teams that gave birth to the personal computer and the Internet. It includes names that read like a who's who of digital pioneers. Robert Noyce, Alan Turing, Bill Gates, the Steves, Wozniak and Jobs, Tim Berners-Lee. But now the surprise. In addition to those famous monikers are names of some folks who are relatively unknown. Ada Lovelace, Vannevar Bush, Grace Hopper, Doug Engelbart, and J.C.R. Licklider. I wanted to resurrect from the obscurity of history some of these incredibly cool people who had first conceptualized a computer. Computers epitomize the modern world, the now, but the conceptualization of the computer occurred earlier than you might think. It was mid-century. Mid-19th century. 
and the work was done by a mathematician who was known to wear a floor-length gown and white gloves. Ada Lovelace was this absolute delight. My daughter, who was writing her college admissions essay, turned me on to her because my daughter wanted to be a computer programmer and said, I never knew there were women computer programmers in history until I realized that computer programming was first conceived by a woman who was Lord Byron's daughter, Ada Lovelace. Walter Isaacson begins with the story of Ada Lovelace. He then follows up with the many individuals whose insights and technological leaps added up to a slow-motion revolution. He gives us deep insight into just what it means to innovate. I think it means to make an imaginative leap. You know, there are about 20 innovations I pick in my book, from the conceptualizing of a computer to a transistor to Google search. And those were the most important leaps that I think brought us to today in the digital age. Every single one of them required thinking out of the box a little bit, being imaginative, sort of questioning, why do we do things the way we do right now? Isn't there some new way to do it? And surprisingly to me, because we biographers often distort history by making it seem like there's some guy or gal in a garage or a garret as a loner coming up with innovation, that most of this work was done in teams by pairs of people or groups of people who bounce ideas around with each other. But there's more than just, you know, sort of thinking outside the box, which is somewhat what you've described there. I mean, to have a dream is one thing, but isn't there a certain amount of business acumen required here? Or is that somewhat, you know, beside the point? Oh, definitely. Vision without execution is just hallucination. And there are a lot of people who had a lot of vision and just hallucinate because they didn't put together teams of people who said, first of all, we can engineer this, we can execute it, we can turn it into products that people will like, and we have a business plan to make it work. There were dozens of people who came up with a personal computer, but it was Steve Jobs paired with Steve Wozniak who said, let's go to the garage, let's make these, let's make a company, let's get a group of people, and thus Apple is born. And there's about 17 other personal computers that year that are known only to true historical geeks. So those just ended up in somebody's basement? The dustbin of history. In fact, speaking of basements, there was a wonderful basement at the Iowa State where John Vincent Adonassoff really created the first electronic computer using vacuum tubes that could do numbers and everything else. But he was a loner, and he had like one graduate student helping him, but he couldn't really finish the whole project. He couldn't get the punch card burners to work. And so he left it in the basement when he went off to the Navy, and they just threw it away. And he would have been lost to history, except for other people came and looked at it and said, well, let's take some of these ideas and make a computer. I'd like to return a little bit to Ada Lovelace, because she was the woman that your daughter apparently convinced you to write something about. Tell me a little bit about how Ada Lovelace figures into the, uh, the invention of the computer. Ada Lovelace was Lord Byron's daughter, and thus she had a poetical streak to her. But her mother, by the time Ada was growing up, was not particularly fond of Lord Byron. He was a little bit too much of a romantic poet. He had, you know, left town, left the country. And so Lady Byron has Ada tutored mainly in mathematics, as if that were some antidote to actually being a romantic poet. It doesn't work because Ada ends up loving both poetry and mathematics, and she practices what she calls poetical science, which is standing at the intersection of the arts and the sciences, where Steve Jobs stood, where, you know, Leonardo da Vinci stood, where a lot of great innovators stand. And so she traveled through the Midlands of England looking at these mechanical looms that were making beautiful patterns using punch cards. Ada Lovelace loved the way the punch cards instructed the looms to weave patterns. She had her friend Charles Babbage, who was making a numerical calculator, and what Ada figured out was that with punch cards, that machine could do more than just numbers. It could make music or words or anything that could be noted in symbols. It could make art. And she even comes up with programs showing an instruction set of how to get punch cards to teach the machine to do things. So that's really the concept of a general purpose computer. I think there are probably some listeners for whom the term punch card is something that just puts a question mark over their crania. Uh, <laughs> uh, this, this, it, it's, it's a way of encoding instructions. It's a computer code, right? Right. It's just a card, a little bit bigger than your usual index card. And maybe because I'm old enough to remember when I programmed in Fortran, we used to have these punch cards. You'd program and it would punch little holes in the card. 
And uh, then the cards would be run through the computer, and that's how you'd insert instruction sets or data into a computer. So it's not actually terribly incorrect to say that the first computers were actually looms. I mean, they weren't generalized programming devices, but they followed a set of instructions and they made these wonderful patterns. Absolutely. In fact, you go to a computer history museum and you'll see the punch cards that instructed those looms to make the patterns. And you'll understand how Ada Lovelace said, well, that could be done with a general purpose machine, not just something that weaves fabric or not just a calculator that processes numbers, but a general purpose machine that can do anything we can note logically. Now, Walter, one of the points you seem to emphasize in your book is that much of the tech revolution was due to the creative efforts of teams as opposed to the, you know, basement inventor type of genius that we often picture. But, I mean, is that really new? Uh, We think of Thomas Edison as fiddling around there in Menlo Park, New Jersey, wherever, uh, until he discovers carbonized thread filaments and then say he invented the light bulb. But in fact, he had a big team doing that. Is it just the way we report these things that's different, or is it really different? Oh, no, I think that we biographers do uh, kind of distort it by making it sound like they're all Edison romantic figures. And even Edison, as you say, wasn't that way. In Menlo Park, he had a whole team. Steve Johnson has written a great book about innovation, showing that throughout history, it comes from collaboration and that imagination and creativity is a team sport. I think it is, though, even more the case in the digital revolution because it's such a collaborative way of networking, doing collaborations on computers. You need theoreticians and business people and engineers to make this whole thing work. So even more than previous revolutions, such as the Industrial Revolution, where a Watt or a Bell or an Edison or a Morse could be a lead person in doing an invention, much more of the inventions of our time have been great teams, whether it's the transistor, the computer, or the Internet. I'd like to discuss a particular innovative activity that has certainly made its mark, even though some people might consider it frivolous, computer gaming. To anyone who cares enough to know some history here, they would think of Nolan Bushnell, the founder of Atari. How did we really get video in computer games? I think it's incredibly important because what makes computers so powerful is that they're very interactive and personal. And you can look at screens and instantly connect with them. And that comes from video games. Stephen Levy wrote a great book called Hackers, which starts with the MIT Tech Model Railway Club and how the people at MIT during that period of the early 1960s were creating video games like Space War that could be done with blips on a screen. Well, that space war game goes out and everybody kind of who's a computer geek across America at research labs is playing it. And soon people like Nolan Bushnell are turning it into games like Pong and making money out of it. This is really the first time you're taking the notion of a computer and a display and making it very interactive and fun. And what does interactive and fun help describe? It describes what the personal computer is today. I have to say, just down the street from here is a comedy club that used to be a bar called Andy Caps, And mm-hmm. I believe that's where Nolan Bushnell that's put his... That's where history began. <laughs> <laughs> Nolan Bushnell creates Pong, that little game, you know, that we're playing the blip back and forth like ping pong or something. And he puts it in Andy Cap's bar, and a few days later they call up and say, this darn machine isn't working, you know, it's, something's wrong with it, and you better get down to fix it because people like playing it. And uh, I think it's Al Alcorn, his engineer, goes down and opens it up to see what the problem is, and quarters spill out all over the floor. The problem was it had been played so much, it had jammed up full of quarters, And that's when we really take it away from the pinball machine manufacturers and it moves out to Silicon Valley so that arcade games and barroom games become very closely connected to computers. So, Walter, you know, who are your heroes, if you had to name a couple of heroes that, uh, you know, were instrumental in, in making the modern world as we picture it with all our devices and our connectivity and all that stuff? I mean... Who, who would you single out for special awards? The unsung heroes include people like J.C.R. Licklider. I'd single him out because he does three things. 
He's doing an air defense system at MIT and some of the companies around there for the Defense Department. So he knows that we need really fast interactive computing, meaning if there's some delay, if you have to process the punch cards, that could be really bad if a missile is coming in. Secondly, he knows you have to have screens that are really easy for humans to understand because a console jockey sitting there, if he confuses a passenger plane for an incoming missile, that's also really bad. And thirdly, he knew we had to network all these air defense computers, so he invents something that he jokingly calls the Intergalactic Computer Network. But when he goes to the Pentagon, he helps fund it. It's called ARPANET, and it really is the backbone of what becomes the Internet. So Lick Licklider, this aw shucks Missouri guy who loved art, loved looking at painting, loved giving credit more than taking credit, loved creating teams, he's the biggest unsung hero of the digital revolution to me. Walter, if you could boil down the invention of the computer and the Internet to just one or two fundamental concepts, this is what we did that really counted. This is what we did that was really essential. Any idea what those would be? Make it more personal. It starts off as these big machines like ENIAC, but after the transistor, after the video games, we make them into personal computers. And secondly, as Aristotle taught us, Man's a social animal, so make him connect, because computers connected to the Internet are a way to communicate and form communities. That's the narrative of the digital revolution, making our machines more personal and into social networking devices. Walter Isaacson, thanks so much for taking the time to be with us today. My pleasure. It's great to be with you. Walter Isaacson is the president and CEO of the Aspen Institute, and he is the author of The Innovators, How a Group of Hackers, Geniuses, and Geeks Created a Digital Revolution. Now that we've heard how it all began, we look to where it's headed. One path may not be what you expect, Scientists working in synthetic biology use the principles of computer technology to program living cells. Next, it's Living Computers on Big Picture Science. From the latest in artificial intelligence to new apps and business upgrades, the tech industry is always changing and growing. So keep up with a Daily Crunch podcast from TechCrunch. With new episodes released nearly every day, The Daily Crunch gives you a brief overview of the biggest tech headlines, and it's all delivered in around five minutes or less, so you can easily hear about the latest updates while trying some of those updates for yourself. Listen to The Daily Crunch now wherever you get your podcasts. That's The Daily Crunch, wherever you get your podcasts. Today's innovation is changing not just our lifestyle, but us. Computers are more than tools that facilitate what we can do. More and more, they can do what we can do. They anticipate the words we're going to write, they design our exercise schedules, even write sports stories for newspapers. In other words, the line dividing biology and technology is no longer so clear. And now we're applying computer technology to biology directly. Scientists working in the field of synthetic biology are using the principles of computer technology to program living cells. My name is Chris Foy, and I'm a professor of bioengineering at MIT. His team wants to make it as easy to create new forms of life as it is to create an app for your computer. They use binary code of ones and zeros to control DNA's code, A's, C's, G's, and T's. So my lab works on being able to program cells in the same way that you might program a computer or try to control a robot. In the last 10,000 years, genetics has taken us from collecting seeds to modifying DNA through breeding. Engineering has taken us from fashioning flint tools to wheelbarrows to handheld computers. So what happens when you combine the two sciences? Well, Christopher Voigt is applying computer programming techniques to programming life using the same sort of logic, input, process, output. When we look at biology, you can see that biology is able to do all sorts of computation. Everything from individual cells to ourselves. We're able to see the environment, think about it, and come up with a response. So you could take a bacterium, for example, and engineer it to produce a specific vaccine or really take 
any living system and program it however you want, according to Professor Voigt, because a cell is a computer. So even if you're looking at an individual bacterium, it has sensors on its surface. It's looking at temperature and different chemicals, whether it's touching something. And then it has a, a number of molecules inside of the cell that take all of that different lines of information, mix it together, and then try to figure out what the best thing to do is. And in that step, there's a lot of computation. So we can say that a cell, like a computer, takes different inputs, it performs some logical operation, and then it outputs some function. In, in basic terms. Yes, exactly. I wonder if you can give me some examples, just some general ideas of what you might want a cell to do that it doesn't already do. Uh, sure. So, for example, if you're trying to engineer a plant and you want the plant to be able to respond to different types of environmental stresses, then you might want to put sensors in that plant that sense, hey, I'm cold or there's an insect that's eating me or any number of things. Now, what do you mean by putting a sensor in a plant? I mean, in the room I'm in right now, there's a light sensor. I can see it right here. There's a sensor that's keeping me at a comfortable little chilly 68 degrees. What does it mean to put a sensor in a plant? Well, uh, all of biology is, is filled with sensors. So you, meant, you mentioned the sensors in the room that are electronic sensors, but of course, what you're looking at right now, the colors that you see, there are sensors in your eyes that are picking up that information. When you touch something, there are sensors in your fingers that are picking up that information. When you eat an apple, there are loads of sensors in your body trying to figure out what it is you just ate and what should be done in response. And so even a plant that just looks like it's sitting there doing nothing, just growing, it's filled with all different types of sensors inside of it that are encoded in the DNA. They're continuously giving that plant information about its environment and what it should be doing and what genes should be turned on. We have only a rudimentary understanding of how that process works and how we might try to intervene to get the plant to see threats that it may not have evolved for and to be able to essentially look around its environment and control synthetic genes in response to different insults. Now, we may be familiar with gene splicing. That's taking one gene from an animal, uh, like the gene for bioluminescence or so forth, and putting it into a plant. But what you're doing is DNA synthesizing. Are they related or are they wholly different endeavors? Well, DNA synthesis is really just a, a chemistry way of getting DNA. So. The traditional way to do it is you would have to go out into nature and identify the gene. And there were techniques where you could go in and make a lot of that gene and then move it into a new host. Now, because of advances in the last decade, you can take any sequence of nucleotides that you want on that come off of the computer. And that goes to a company that then chemically synthesizes that DNA sequence and sends it back to you. There's no biology involved until you put that synthetic piece of DNA into a cell and then it starts to replicate. Okay, let's break this down a little bit because this is truly remarkable. So you're not starting with a pre-existing DNA sequence, so like the sequence for the banana plant or whatever it might be. You're starting from scratch and creating your own DNA sequence. Right. You could be a monkey on the keyboard just typing ATs, Gs, and Cs, and that's going to create a sequence. Probably nonsense, but you can take that sequence. Problem is, how do we design something? How do we design a banana plant? I mean, it seems so simple, but the actual biology underlying it is, is incredibly complicated, and we don't know how to map that on DNA yet. But also, why would you want to? We already have banana plants. Well, you already have banana plants, but there are a lot of things in biology that we would like to get access to. So a number of years ago, my lab built an edge detector program where you would shine a light on a lawn of growing bacteria, and they communicate to calculate where the edge is between the light and the dark. More recently, we've been using that same type of capability to put process control algorithms in cells. So if you have bacteria making a product in a bioreactor, they can all individually regulate how they're eating and how they're metabolizing the feedstock in order to optimize the production of that product. So we have this parallel between genetic circuits operating like electronic circuits, but it's not completely analogous. It's a little bit different than a computer program. We tend to have this feeling that 
programming and circuitry requires electronics, and that's not true at all. So you can build circuits out of water. You can build circuits. Um, some of the first computers were weaving looms that had gears that would do circuit-like operations. And so once you've created those basic fundamental units of computation, then the sky's the limit, and you can do everything that you could do on a computer but do it within a cell. It's just using biochemistry instead of electrons in order to do the same calculation. Well, you said you, so you can do all this within the cell, but you, you don't want to collapse the cellular function, the basic cellular function. So how do you get a cell to continue doing what it needs to do as a cell to metabolize and all of that, but then also um, express these novel functions? Well, that's one of the really challenging things to, to do well. Um, what you ultimately want is where you have a cell and the cell is doing everything it would normally do, eating everything it would normally eat, surviving, and then you just have this program running in the background that's using not too many resources but just enough to do the computation. And that's a, that's a big effort that's ongoing as to how to completely decouple the computation that you want the cell to run from all of the natural things that the cell wants to do. Chris, I wonder if you could just give me an idea of where this is going. What are some blue sky applications for synthetic biology, bioengineering? Oh, so there are a number of them. In therapeutics, I think it's going to be very fast response to uh, biological threats. So things like emerging viruses around the world. Once you've turned those viruses into an information science, you can transmit the information to a facility that can make a vaccine without having to transport the organism. And synthetic biology brings a whole slew of new techniques that can help with that process. There are going to be new products that come out of biology that have the sophistication of what we see out of the natural world. So it can build the intricate chemistries that are required for pharmaceuticals or map the nanoscale features that are required to produce large quantities of advanced functional materials. Well, could you do something even bigger? Could you do, not that those aren't incredibly big projects, I don't mean that, but I'm sort of wondering, like, as we harness the power of biology and merge it with the power of computers, or our understanding of programming, could you, I don't know, make a tree that would build its own treehouse within it? I mean, can you get into really kind of weird and novel, large-scale functions for biology? Yeah, so I think anything that you see around you is a potential area that could that could be applied. So, so you mentioned a tree and kind of building its own treehouse, but you can look at organisms living in the ocean and they build fiber optic cables. Um, you could look at organisms that are able to accumulate uh, metals, and so you could pull these out of ocean water. There's just this enormous range of potential applications that come just out of biology, and we're only at the early stages of understanding what is possible or how far this te technology can go. And right now, we build biology by putting little snippets of DNA together. You know, as you say, once computers start helping with this process, it's really going to unlock uh, the potential of the field. You know, I'm sure you've gotten the question of, are you trying to play God? Let's set that aside. What about just the general unease that the public may feel at the idea of cutting and splicing and creating novel organisms? How do you address that? Yeah, I think part of it is uh, addressing it with the products and technologies that come out of that. So. In some sense, it's not really a new technology. It's one of the largest economies in the U.S. today, larger than mining and semiconductors. So our use of engineering biology surrounds us. And this involves all aspects of it, including genetic engineering and synthetic biology and so on. And I think what we're going to see is as we make meaningful progress around some of the real issues that face us, using biology as the substrate, I think we're going to see this as a, as a new engineering discipline that is as applicable to solving humanity's problems as physics was in chemistry and all of the other fields over the last hundred years. Christopher Voigt, thank you so much for speaking with us. Oh, thank you. Christopher Voigt is a bioengineer at MIT. Okay, while programming biology is a technology that's just getting on its feet, computer capabilities are racing ahead. And this suggests that we're closing in on the possibility of 
non-biological machines, souped-up computers, being not just our servants, but our equals. And if this happens, there are more than a few writers who would say, I told you so. Science fiction novels and films have long served as a stage, or therapist couch, for working out our fears and hopes about the future of intelligent machines. And some of those fictional machines are particularly memorable. For perspective on the prescience of these science fiction visions, technology journalist Andy Inotko and Star Trek screenplay writer Andre Bormanis describe which super-smart computers they think have most memorably captured our hopes and fears regarding our digital future. I'm Andre Bormanis. If I had to pick just one example of artificial intelligence from a science fiction film, I think I would go with Colossus from a movie called Colossus the Forbin Project. It's a movie probably not a lot of people have seen. It came out about you know, 35 years ago. And it was basically about a scientist who had developed an ultra-sophisticated computer to control all of the Defense Department weaponry, all of our missiles and jet fighters and so forth. And unbeknownst to this scientist and the rest of the Defense Department, the Russians were developing a similar computer, and the two computers linked up, and they formed a kind of a superintelligence that essentially took control of the world. That, I think, is uh, sort of the, the thing we probably fear most about the potential of artificial intelligence, that it will outsmart us, that it will somehow take over and run the world in a way that may not be to our liking. I'm Andy Anatko, and I guess the fictional artificial intelligence that represents everything that we hope and everything we fear about technology that would have to be the the artificial intelligence that controls the Starliner on Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, because it knows that there's supposed to be a box of lemon-soaked paper napkins on board before they can allow the flight to take off. And because passengers cannot enjoy the flight unless there are lemon-soaked paper napkins available, it's going to keep everybody on board in suspended animation for hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years, even though civilization has collapsed all around the spaceport, until there's lemon-soaked paper napkins, it's not going to let people off the spacecraft. We create things hoping that, hey, technology, take care of us, do nice things for us, look after us. But then sometimes it screws up by not giving us a vote in how it does things that it thinks we want it to do. Andy Inatko is a technology journalist. Andre Bormanis is a writer, and he has written screenplays for Star Trek. So which of those visions of the computer future are more likely to come true? Stay tuned and you decide. Machines are getting faster and working together in new ways. Get ready to connect everything together. It's the Internet of Things next on Big Picture Science. Wired Science, you can geek out all you want. It's a podcast for anyone obsessed with math, science, space, biology, or technology. And it provides in-depth coverage on current news and discoveries. From strange diseases that turn your tongue fuzzy to tech that'll help crops grow from space. New episodes are released nearly every day, and they're typically under 10 minutes, so you can easily make them a part of your daily routine. Listen in the morning while you're getting ready or during lunch while you check NASA's astronomy picture of the day. Check out Wired Science now wherever you get your podcasts. That's Wired Science wherever you get your podcasts. You're listening to Big Picture Science, and we're talking about how computer technology has transformed our lives. That's all. Earlier in the show, we heard Walter Isaacson say that the one-word narrative of the digital revolution is connection. So make them connect, because computers connected to the Internet are a way to communicate and form communities. 
You want connection? Well, even if you don't, it's coming. Call it the hive mind group thing. A hootenanny of hookup, I don't know. But computer types call it the Internet of Things. My name is John Barrett. I'm an electronic engineer by origin. And a lot of my work these days is around the Internet of Things. And when we talk about and when he helps design systems that connect everything in the Internet of Things, well, just what things are we talking about? It depends who you believe, I think. If you listen to a lot of the hype, then every single thing imaginable on the planet will be connected to the Internet within 20 years. I think more realistically, we're looking perhaps at a more narrow range of applications immediately. We're already seeing, for instance, the home automation beginning to hit the market and become attractive to consumers. And we're already seeing devices like fitness monitors and so on, wearable fitness monitors that communicate with your phone, with the Internet to track your fitness and activity levels. And these will be moving forward into more complicated health monitors. Would this extend this connecting everything? Would it include, obviously, machines, goods, buildings, things we wear, health monitors, my implantable defibrillator, whatever, that kind of thing? But would it include also, you know, the trees outside my house or, or stuff like that? It's interesting because certainly in the agriculture domain, there's quite a bit of work going on to monitor crops and, say, fruit trees, to monitor the stages of ripeness. You can also monitor the soil conditions and so on so that you can optimize the growth patterns and you can predict more accurately when the crop will be ready for market. And that then spills down the distribution chain and the logistics chain all the way to the supermarkets. So take, for instance, the supermarket could get a very early warning that your apple crop is going to be ready two weeks early. So the clear space in the supermarket to put the current apples on sale. Well, that's a very interesting application. Let's break down how we do this. I know that in talks you've kind of outlined three basic things we do. And the first is to give each of these objects, whatever they are, you know, an apple tree or, <laughs> or just, you know, my toaster oven, give it an identity, a unique identity. Maybe you could explain what that means. So every web page on the Internet currently has a unique address and a couple of years ago, maybe it's about three, four years ago now, the Internet was at the stage of beginning to run out of addresses under the old addressing system, which was called IPv4. The Internet has now moved over to IPv6, and it is almost beyond describing the number of unique addresses that are now available. And I suppose as a metric, which might go down well with your own listeners, they say that there are more potential addresses than there are stars in the observable universe. Well, okay, but each of them might want an address as well. I mean, maybe I'm going to have to expand this again. Okay, so that's the first thing we have to do. We just got to label everything, but that sounds like it's well underway. Uh, step two, it has to communicate. How so? The level of communication can vary from something very, very simple. For instance, many people, um, I'm not sure how it is in the US, but we have what's called NFC um, payment systems on our phones and our smart cards. So instead of having to put your credit card into a reader, you can just bring your credit card close to a reader and it will communicate wirelessly over a short distance. And many of the things in the Internet of Things will simply be able to communicate over the short distance. Moving up further, we can go to longer range and more sophisticated electronic systems. We call them embedded systems. They're electronics that are embedded in the thing or attached to the thing. And these then can collect multiple examples of sensor data and transmit it over a longer distance. And in fact, going back to the agricultural application, we could see all the trees in an apple orchard network together automatically. So you put, say, a color sensor at the apple tree, which can detect the color of the apples as an indication of the stage of ripeness. Every tree then begins to communicate with each other in a complicated network and send the information on what's happening on all the trees back to a central controller, which can then look at the overall state of ripeness in the orchard. All right. Uh, I can understand that. So there might be sort of local communication within the entire orchard, if you will. We have That's right. Trees talking to one another, saying, you know, here's my condition, what's yours, whatever. But eventually there might be sort of a group report that might be connected to the Internet, for example, and, and could be monitored, you know, thousands of miles away. That's right. And the challenge is not so much collecting all that data. 
So you're monitoring, say, a thousand apple trees. One of the big challenges for the Internet I think, is making sense out of that data. And that, I think, will be probably an even bigger challenge than getting everything connected in the Internet of Things. Well, I definitely want to get back to that because I, I want to know what we could do with all those data. After all, they're not just there to take up memory space somewhere. I mean, we, right. we want to look at them. We want to you know, learn something about maybe apples in general or the apple crop worldwide, not just in my farm over here. Mm-hmm. So, But just to finish up the three things that have to be done. So we've talked about how they communicate, how you identify them. And the third thing, I guess, is what they're telling us. I don't know, temperature and so forth. Give me some idea of the sorts of reports you might get from the Internet of Things other than your heating system is on or off or the toaster has just spewed out some toast. What, what kind of things might it tell you? So, for example, there is, I suppose there are subsets to the Internet of Things, and one of them is beginning to be called the Internet of Moving Things. So think of a city's traffic management system so that you know where every car is. And not only that, you know where every car wants to go. And based on that, you can begin to do better traffic management. You can reduce congestion, increase fuel efficiency across the whole city, reducing pollution also. All right. So everything's connected to everything else. It's producing this fire hose of data. How accessible would this data likely be? I mean, obviously, if I have my crops connected in this way. I'm interested in that. Maybe the guy next door is not so very interested in that. There's no reason for him to have access to that. Presumably that's private. But a lot of these data, uh, for example, the health of people, if they have Mm -hmm. a personal monitor, those data would be very interesting to people doing research on disease and so forth. I mean, is all that stuff going to be publicly available or, or not? That is one of the big questions for the Internet of Things. Who will own the data? And is the data only available to be sold as a commodity or should it be shared for the public good? This is one of the, I think, one of the big unsolved issues. So particularly where data may be stored very distant from where it's generated. When you send your data up into the cloud, you have no idea where the server is that actually stores that data. Many of them are now located above the Arctic Circle to help keep them cool. If the data is held up above the Arctic Circle, which rule of law applies? How could I, as a citizen, get access to that data? Or perhaps, um, I'm not sure if it's happened in the States, but over here in Europe, we've had a law that's called the right to be forgotten on Google. So if you have something that you think that Google shouldn't be reporting on you, we now have the right to ask Google to remove that data from their searches. In the case of the much broader range of data coming from the Internet of Things, the right to be forgotten becomes almost impossible to implement. And so there are many concerns around that. I would think that, you know, if I were clever with the programming and so forth and all these data were available, for example, the data on, I don't know, pig production or something like that, you know, I might want to try and get an edge in pork belly futures, if you will. I mean, I I might be able to make a lot of money by knowing how your apple orchard is doing. Mm -hmm. And that, again, security and privacy and the Internet of Things are two major issues. The potential to do things like you say, which is to hijack data, is extended. At the moment, your data, say, on your purchasing habits or the websites you visited can be hijacked. And so your credit card details can be stolen and you lose financially. But what happens when your health data, your purchasing habits, your location, the things that you have used can be aggregated to produce a much wider picture of your behavior. It becomes down to not just financial information theft, but almost information theft for your whole life. And that certainly, I think, is one of the concerns of all citizens and one that will have to be addressed before the Internet of Things can be a real success. Yeah, I can imagine that I might have difficulty getting, for example, health insurance, somewhat of an issue in this country anyhow. But, that's right. you know, the, the insurance company finds out all about my health history and they say, well, we don't want to insure that guy. He's to greater risk. And suddenly I can't get health insurance just because of these public data. Just mentioning that many of the health insurance companies are very positive about the Internet of Things because they see it not so much as a way to spy on your lack of health, 
but as a way that you can maintain your health in a better way and so you're less likely to become a liability for the health insurers. So if my heart can be monitored remotely and an early warning given, it's much lower cost, much more effective to deal with that at an early stage than when I have to be carted off to hospital in an ambulance. Well, I mean, we've been talking about the Internet of Things as if it were a situation, sort of a one-way schema where you have, you know, all these things and they're all connected, if you will, to the cloud, to a server somewhere. So all these data are up there, but they could also talk to one another, could they not? I mean, you know, my toaster might talk to the orchard out back or something like that. I'm, I'm not quite sure what that means, but is that also envisioned? I mean, will there be, you know, communication that's not mediated by, by people? Indeed. And there is what's called the M2M or the machine to machine Internet of Things, which is over in the industrial and the commercial applications. So you could imagine perhaps a fleet of driverless cars that um, don't need human intervention to drive. And so their destination, their speed to the destination is controlled so that they get there as quickly as possible, as efficiently as possible. You reduce the risk of accidents. That is um, one of the areas also. Well, an obvious thing that uh, certainly comes up in these discussions is the question of uh, could something awfully malevolent come out of it? Uh, Werner Vinge wrote years ago about the kind of the singularity as it's come to be known, where all these things are talking to one another and they sort of wake up. And it's like adding neurons and neurons to, you know, synthetic neurons to a machine. And eventually maybe, maybe it's aware of its own existence or if not aware, at least able to do things and that we lose control over all this. I mean, is such an apocalyptic scenario actually possible or probable? I don't think so. Not within my lifetime, I would say, um, in that the level of artificial intelligence and what would be called swarm intelligence necessary for these relatively low intelligence things to work together in aggregate doesn't exist. And it's unlikely to exist, I think, for a very long time. So, John, uh, your thumbs up. You see the glass half full on the Internet of Things, I take it. I guess it's sort of like the automobile. I mean, the automobile has plenty of downsides. It kills people. It uh, causes congestion. It wastes time. It burns gasoline. But on the other hand, it also does an awful lot for us that's very positive. So I, I take it uh, the Internet of Things, your thumbs up. I'd like very much to think that the positive impacts will outweigh the risks. Certainly, I think for my own children, I'd like to see them living in an Internet of Things world where it does positive things for them and for the planet that they inhabit. I think certainly if the great hopes that are being built up for the Internet of Things can actually happen, I think we will end up living in a better world. John Barrett, thank you so very much for speaking with us today. You're very welcome, Seth, and thanks for the opportunity. John Barrett is an electronic engineer at the Nimbus Center for Embedded Systems Research at the Cork Institute of Technology in Ireland. He's optimistic that computers won't take over completely. I mean, Hal will not eventually make the scene to prevent us from opening the pot or even the kitchen door, not because we'd stop him, but because computers will never achieve such advanced abilities. And his assessment is in keeping with that of Ada Lovelace, who, as we heard, pioneered the age of information in the 19th century. So we turn over the last thoughts on this matter to her. Ada considered the long-term future of computing, says Walter Isaacson, and she had no doubt that computation had the power to augment human abilities. She did add one caveat, however. After saying these machines could do everything, she said, but they will never originate thought, they will never be creative, they will never think. That will be the role of humans to supply the imagination and the originality. She also dreamed up the idea of artificial intelligence, you know, the kind of thing mm -hmm. that uh, gets bantered around at a lot of cocktail parties now. But she didn't think that true, or should I say strong, artificial intelligence was possible, did she? No. She always thought that humans were going to add the creativity. It's called by Alan Turing, Lady Lovelace's objection, because Alan Turing disagreed. He said, we'll find a way to make machines that think. And that's always been the great dispute in the digital era, is are our machines going to surpass us, replace us, think without us, or were they going to become more personal and more connected to us? 
The second strand, that's the Ada Lovelace strand, that the human creativity will always be augmented by computers and computers will not replace us. I think she turns out to be right. And we shouldn't be particularly encouraged if we think AI is around the corner by IBM's Watson, for example, winning at Jeopardy. That's not real intelligence? No. In fact, Watson nowadays is being paired with doctors to help do computer diagnosis. But the uh, CEO of IBM, Jenny Ramati, has said that they've discovered that the combination of humans with computers is far more powerful than just the computer on its own. That's true of the chess-playing computers as well. So when you pair human creativity with machine processing power, they both augment the other side. Well, so what we've heard in the show, beginning with the birth of the computer 200 years ago or so, to now, if we thought computers had completely transformed our lives, we hear now from John Barrett what the future may be when we hook up the Internet of Things, and we will certainly be living with computers in the future. It's a whole ecology of computers. It's sort of like the environment out there. We have, you know, different animals and plants all interacting, and we're going to have all these things interacting you know, what strikes me is how long it took for the development of computers. Ada Lovelace, that's 200 years ago. She was born 200 years ago. It took all that time before we got computers, and then suddenly they blossom. It's like television. The first television really was the Nipkoff disk in 1884. Look how long it took. It's interesting that you use the word ecology to describe the Internet of Things because the word biology comes up in that discussion with Christopher Voigt, that idea that each cell is a computer in itself, and that we're learning to control cells the way that we control our machine world. Yeah. For hundreds of years, we've studied biology. We never engineered it. Well, that's about to change. And I kind of like the idea because, you know, we talk a lot about nanobots. The best nanobots might be bacteria re-engineered. They have big advantages. For one thing, they die. They'll go away. Brings us back to that question at the end. Was Ada Lovelace right that machines could do quite a lot, but they would never surpass human abilities? The future looks unclear to me. I don't know if I would be prepared to say that she was absolutely right in that prognostication. Listen, if Ada were alive today, I would make her a bet that she's actually wrong. Thanks to a production team that keeps us connected, Gary Niederhoff and Barbara Vance. Also thanks to financial support from Rena Shulsky-David and Sammy David and the NASA Astrobiology Institute. Big Picture Science is produced at the SETI Institute, whose mission is to understand and explore the nature of life. And a big thanks also to our listeners. Your ears have been attuned to living computers. If you'd like to hear more Big Picture Science, you can peruse our archive online at our website bigpicturescience.org. And if you're a podcast listener, but you prefer to substitute that for over-the-air radio because your AI in residence insists, check out the listing on our website of radio stations that carry the program. And if your local station is not on that list, well, consider letting them know you like the show. Oh, have a comment, a criticism, even a suggestion, throw in some praise, and email it all to bigpicturescience at seti.org. Huh? Oh, what was that? Yep, you do.